Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Kane, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercane.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover book three of The Dark Tower, The Wastelands, chapter four, Town and Cotet. Let's start the show. So this chapter picks up four days after Jake comes through the doorway to Midworld. The Cotet is joined by Oi, a Billy Bumbler, who takes a liking to Jake. The Cotet makes its way to River Crossing, a small town inhabited by old people who remember the world before it moved on. After dinner and a palaver in which much is discussed and learned, the group makes a decision on how to proceed to the city of Ludd. Jay, I'm going to start off by saying this is not the most exciting chapter in this book or basically in the series so far. Um, (laughs) Criticism right off the bat there, huh? no criticism, just not very exciting. So we get to meet a new character, Oi, whom even though I have not read the books, you know, I'm I'm just to where we are now. I'm reading in real time at this point and not ahead. I've heard a lot mm-hmm. of Oi. I know one of our people we follow on Twitter, the Lego Dark Tower guy, spent a lot yeah. of time talking about Oi and trying to get the right figure to, to create Oi. And I've heard people talk about Oi on Twitter and elsewhere, and people are very excited about this character. So yeah. All right, so Oi gets a lot of love. Yeah, so Oi seems to be a beloved character, so that's good. I know one of our listeners wrote us and said, "Please tell me Oi doesn't die," and I said, "I have no idea because I haven't read on." But I, you know, <laughs> even somebody else is intrigued by Oi right away. So, so we get Oi, um, and then we get lots and lots of talking. We get talking between the members of the Cotet on their way to River Crossing. We get talking between the Cotet and the people in River Crossing. We get talking yeah, we after they start to leave River Crossing between the members of the Cotet. And nothing much happens. It all seems to be a decision-making chapter in which they decide, hey, let's continue moving onward, just like we've been doing all this time <laughs> and not going a different way. Which, all right. So, luckily, yeah. it was only 50 pages. Well, while I don't disagree with you that it was not the most exciting chapter that we've read so far, I enjoyed it immensely. I really liked meeting Oi, and I really liked Jake's kind of more complete integration into the group. But I also really enjoyed the time that we spent at the River Crossing Town and uh, getting to know some of the, the old folks there. And it was really fun to see how people who also know how the world was before it moved on reacted when a gunslinger was in their midst. Mm -hmm. It made being a gunslinger all the more important and all the more impressive and added layers and complexity to what a gunslinger is and what a gunslinger can do and what a gunslinger must do as a member of the larger society. He's not just the guy who knows how to shoot really well. And we've talked about that. We've kind of referred to him as a knight errant, or maybe perhaps a masterless samurai. And when he comes to this town, that's what all of these people see him as. That is the first thing they see him as. And they treat him with the respect and reverence that that role in society warrants. And it's really great to see that because we've only seen Roland first through his own eyes. And so we only know what he kind of cares to share with us and what he thinks is important in the moment. And then we see him through 
the eyes of people from our world. They're just learning what he's all about. He as an individual is about. As far as they're concerned, he's one of a kind. And in a way, of course, Roland is one of a kind, but he's still a member of a long and sacred tradition. And we get to get a much stronger sense of what that tradition is all about by seeing how he interacts with people who know the tradition. Yeah. So I will give you that. So this is the first time we've seen Roland interact with people of his world. Other than in the first book, there was Tall, of course. Mm -hmm. But Tall seemed to be a town way out on the boonies. It was a lot of people who didn't remember things before the world moved on. And they didn't seem to treat Roland as anything special other yeah. than just somebody coming through town who had a little bit more money than everyone else and was an outsider. But they didn't treat him like a gunslinger, like you're saying um, mm -hmm. the, the folks in River Crossing did. So the only other time we've seen Roland interact is in flashbacks back to Gilead. And what's interesting about those flashbacks is it's almost entirely made up of people who are of the higher society of gunslingers right? and, and that cast, not with the normal people. So to your point, it is interesting to see how he reacts and more how people react to him in this town. Um, it reminds me a lot of how the Jedi are portrayed in Star Wars, um, especially mm -hmm. in, the, in the prequel trilogy, where they're this role of ambassador... Um, diplomat, peacekeeper. peacekeeper, but still warrior if necessary, that Qui-Gon plays. Um, I, I got much more of a feel of that in this chapter. That What was interesting for me about this expanded role of the gunslinger was that they are aware of gunslingers, but they've never heard of Gilead, and they've never heard of anything that's happened in Roland's past, mm. because they've had gunslingers come to their town, but it did seem like it was, you know, it's very much a decentralized area, right? The government. Yeah. Gunslingers have come, but they're, they didn't know where they came from or where they exist. Right. It makes you wonder, did, did all gunslingers emanate from Gilead and just span the world in their travels? Or were gunslingers just something that all society spawned in one form or another and that they were there was enough connection of the culture that that could exist or that could happen? So, yeah. And that's not really explained to us or, or clarified. It's just like... You know what a gunslinger is, but you don't know where Roland came from. You never even heard of it. So, And we learn a little bit more about, we're told in the gunslinger when Roland is put to sleep after that long discussion with the man in black and he wakes up and the man in black is dead and, mm -hmm. and he's there and, and he says to himself, oh, it's been 10 years since. Yeah, 10 years. Exactly. But here we learn it's been much longer than that, that it might have been anywhere from hundreds to a thousand years yep. since the fall of, you know, since that palaver with the man in black at the Golgotha. So we don't know exactly. Time seems to have shifted again. And, and this town seems there, there's people there who remember before the world moved on. But again, they don't we don't have a good sense of time between when Roland was there and his initial yeah. incident. I don't know if. King changed that on purpose or just thought that it would work better to have that as a longer period of time. I like it being longer than 10 years. Yeah. I like the idea that not only did Roland himself spend 20 years of his life chasing the man in black, but that he lost perhaps centuries just sleeping on the on the top of that mountain before he woke up and walked down to the shore, you know. Like yes. The whole rest of the world may have just kept on ticking but 
he's he just was lying there and frozen in time somehow and like Buck Rogers. Yeah. If only Aaron Gray was part of this quartet. He wakes up in the twenty first and a half century. (laughs) That's Duck Dodgers. (laughs) Oh yeah, sorry, I get him confused. All right, I still don't think it's that exciting of a chapter, though. It, it, I, yeah. I'll give you that it is interesting to see this reaction to Roland and how he's treated in this culture. But for me, it's not enough to to keep my interest for the whole chapter. Yeah. Well, sometimes you just need some character development, and you need some, you know, table setting. Yeah. So a lot of this, yeah. And to your point, so we get a couple. You know, we do get a lot of table setting, and we get some hints as to what might come and a lot of more backstory. So I know that that's one of the things you and I talked about in chapter one of this book, how much we liked, we get a bigger sense of the world of Roland as he starts to tell stories. And we'll talk a little bit about how this quartet starts to talk and learns how they're all interacted. So um, maybe this is a good time to talk about that. We get a good explanation of what a quartet is from Roland. It's really people who are bound together and can even read each other's minds to some extent. Mm-hmm. And they talk yeah. back about when they were at the speaking circle and trying to bring Jake along, how there were times when they were interacting with each other and they thought they heard each other's voices when in fact they were just talking in each other's heads and they, they're picking up pieces of information that they couldn't have known um, but weren't told them, but they 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 read it from each other. So Susanna and Eddie and Roland and Jake can speak, and we've already seen how Jake and Eddie were even able to speak across worlds through the doorway. So we get that better understanding of a, what what a quartet is. Yeah, there's clearly more than just the you know having a something in common like a common goal or a common adversary. There there's a, a mystical or magical link between the members of a quartet. And it also seems that certainly Susanna and Eddie and Jake are part of this quartet. And I think Roland is part of it as well. But he explains to the the rest that his connection is the weakest Mm -hmm. of them all. And he is not sure why. Maybe it's because he's from a different world. Maybe it's because of his age or something like that. But for whatever reason, he's not as strongly connected as they are to each other. And... I forget if it's Jake or Eddie who asks if Oi is part of the quartet. Right. And and Roland says, I don't know, could be. You know, like like he's kind of still like, I don't know if he's just being aloof or he just has no idea. Yeah. Because while Oi can parrot some of their words, it's not like they can ask him. You know, like, did you know what we were going to do? Did you know who we are? Do you know what this is all about? And Oi is very connected to Jake from the get-go. He's a little bit more standoffish with the rest of them, especially Roland, yeah. but but Jake particularly, he takes a liking to. Um, I wonder, pure speculation, and I don't know if this is true or not, but Roland has mentioned that he has already been in a quartet with Cuthbert mm-hmm. and Elaine and, and his other gunslingers, and I wonder if that might be the reason his connection to this quartet might not be as strong that he'd been in a previous one. So it's not so much that you can't be in more than one quartet in your lifetime. It's more that he knows what it was like to be in the one before. And this one doesn't feel as strong or he has something to compare it to. Yeah. So just a thought. In addition to that, there seems to be other relationships sort of building up along here. Um, Eddie seems to be taking on the role of older brother to Jake. 
um, just yes, sort definitely. of you know bringing him along, explaining what's going on, and it's interesting because he is not being the older brother that Henry was to Eddie. He's being a much kinder, gentler version of that older brother, a very supportive, a very understanding. You know, he he realizes, hey, you just got pulled into a weird world and you didn't have pants on. And now <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's all weird. So uh, I'm going to help you through this in my jive style. And I'm the cool older brother. And by this point, Eddie and and Jake have had kind of this psychic connection for what could be months, what could be weeks, or it could be like half of their lifetimes in in many different you know or from many different perspectives they've had a bond for a long time so when they finally meet in person it's sort of like somebody that they've already known for yep. a long long while and it's all about sort of formalizing all those connections that have been virtual up to this point so there's a lot of that too and i think because when in the time period that jake goes through the door He's about the age that Eddie was when Jake was. Uh, they were the same age uh, yes. in New York at that in that year, approximately. So they have that in common as well. So at the same time that Eddie's taking on this role of older brother to Jake, Roland and Eddie's relationship seems to be changing as well. And we've pointed to this many times, but Eddie is starting to push back more on Roland about mm-hmm. what his role is and what they're going to do. You know, they've. He even says, you know, if, if you were to die, we would bury you and continue on to the tower ourselves. Yeah. He's able to sneak up on Roland uh, that night, you know, after their palaver. And, you know, Roland says, well, if I was really paying attention, I could have seen him and heard him. But, you mm-hmm. know, at, at first he's not able to. And he's realizing, wow, Eddie's picking up a number of skills and is becoming much more formidable. Yep. He, he's becoming a, a truly dangerous person because of the training that Roland is giving him. Yes. And you know, adding to his own natural talents and, and capabilities, he's becoming a, a gunslinger. And yeah, you know, Roland reflects multiple times in within just a few pages how much like Cuthbert Eddie is in personality and in temperament and in in skill and deadliness. And uh, then he fi- like one of the final thoughts he has on the matter is that he may have already surpassed Cuthbert. And I find that kind of remarkable considering Cuthbert had the advantage of growing up in Gilead, getting all of the early training and schooling that these young gunslingers-to-be got, including court training. Yes. Eddie has had none of that. No, he, he just had- grew up in, in <laughs> Co-op City and had a crappy older brother and then got hooked on heroin and then he spent a few weeks with Roland hiking through the woods following the beam. And here he is, a more formidable gunsinger than Cuthbert ever was. So I I accept that. I think uh, Roland's assessment of the situation is accurate, but it's kind of amazing. Like how how uh, where was Eddie's starting point that much greater? Right. You know, if Eddie had grown up in Gilead, would he have been like the best gunsinger ever? Would he have been better than Roland? You know. Although I don't know how well. Eddie would have done in the diplomatic part that Roland's playing with the elders of Rivers Crossing. Like, Eddie doesn't seem like he would be good at that part. Like, he might be formidable, he might be good with a gun, but that whole Mm -hmm. knowing what to say at the right time and, you know, bringing people into the conversation and going through the customs, that doesn't seem like it would be Eddie's bag. Yeah, he might not be as good at that. (laughs) 
Roland seems to be skilled in all areas here. Yes. Of the gunslinger. And again, that just might be his growing up. You're right. But it'd be interesting to know that. So the other member of the quartet, um, Susanna, doesn't get a whole lot of play in this chapter. But we do learn potentially one thing about her, and that is that she might be pregnant. So congratulations, Susanna. Um, She's not sure yet for sure. And she doesn't tell anybody else, but she has missed a period, but she hasn't had any morning sickness. So um, she's not saying anything to everyone yet, anyone yet, but that ought to be interesting if that is indeed true. Well, in addition to Susanna not getting a lot of um, screen time, if you will, in this chapter, uh, she's more of an observer and commenter than than anything else. Uh, She also reveals that she has not personally had a vision of the tower. Mm. So I don't know what that means. Like, does that mean that she, she really, she's not as committed to it or the magic of the tower just hasn't reached her yet for some reason. But it's interesting that clearly Roland has had some connection to the tower that has consumed his very being. It's beyond just an obsession with him. It's like all the forces of the universe seem to be conspiring to lead Roland to the tower. Uh, but Eddie has had these visions and he has, and he comes right out and says that to Roland, like, you don't need to lead me to the tower anymore. I am going to the tower. I think you would have to struggle to stop me at right. this point. And I don't know if Jake has had a vision of the tower. He hasn't revealed that yet in conversation, but he's had all sorts of visions of like the flower and the and the rose, the, uh, the rose, and the, the key. purple, yeah, the purple blade of grass, and you know, Roland says that's the most important moment of your life, and perhaps of all of our lives, that you were able to have that vision. Right. So, yeah, he, if not exactly of the tower, enough that he's he's on board with it. Right. So it kind of feels like of the four humans in this group, only three of them have strong impulses via I don't know magical influence. To, to complete this quest, but the fourth one has missed out on that messaging thus far. Hmm. And I don't know. I don't if, know why or if no. it means anything. That That's interesting. By that absence, you think that that's giving her some sort of importance. Perhaps. Perhaps, yeah. All right. So they have their long palaver at the end and they start to see how they're all connected and how their stories are intertwined. And no one's really heard the entire story from beginning to end. So they're all sort of shocked at the connections. and. Mm-hmm. At one point, when Jake is telling the story and uh, about the books that he picked up, the Charlie the Choo Choo Train book, Eddie and Suzanne are like, "Oh yeah, I had that book," and they're sort yeah, of, of course they, I did. In, in fact, who knows? They might have even had that exact same. Like it might have been that book because they both lost it at times along the way. So, and because mm-hmm. of the way their ages are and their times are, it wouldn't be unlikely that. Oh, I guess it would be unlikely, but it it wouldn't it wouldn't be odd, especially in the world impossible. of Ka and Katet and coincidence, that the book that Odetta lost when she was young ended up in Eddie's hands and got lost when he moved and ended up at the bookstore where Jake picked it up. So they all remember that book. Jake seems to be the one who realizes that you know maybe this is important in some way, especially when they start to talk to the 
old people of River Crossing about Blaine the Mono, who yep. um, is this train that had moved through Ludd and that they they were aware of. So, in a sense, it's kind of like satisfying that they actually have this discussion. How many plots of how many TV shows and movies revolve around the fact that just if one person had simply explained something to somebody else, the whole thing would have been wrapped up in a second. You know? Yeah, and here they they're, they're almost acknowledging that fact. It's like we all have bits and pieces of what's going on. Let's share all of it, all that we know with each other, so that we have a as complete of a picture as possible, and we can move forward with you know our the best chance that we that we can get, rather than just like, yeah, I, I think I'll for no particular reason I'll leave out some <laughs> vital piece of information, and that'll totally change the rest of the the story so but of course from our perspective as a reader we knew all of this too so it is a little bit redundant and hey let's let's have a big flashback on everything that happened i know the king doesn't go into every detail on everything yeah. and there, there's he skips out parts but i think that that's part of the hey they're just sitting around talking about stuff we knew that um you know we do get some of the connections and king is able mm -hmm. to point those out and i think king does an okay job of abbreviating that you know he'll, he'll says like Jake talked the sun down right and then it'll be like and then he finished the story of <laughs> so it's like okay well, yeah we heard the story so the other big discussion that happens is in the town of river crossing um and it is interesting because as we talked a little bit about earlier Roland's able to fill in some of the gaps that they have and and they're able to fill in a lot of other gaps mm -hmm. So Roland isn't aware of Rivers Crossing or Ludd, and he only has some idea of what could potentially happen here. And as they walk into Rivers Crossing, you know, he tells the rest of his group, you know, be on guard because we don't know what we're going to find here. And what they find is a lot of really, really old people are hiding from different groups of fighters that have passed through this town, and they, they've they've sort of hidden themselves and camouflaged themselves into basements and and gardens that are behind walls and, and fake buildings. Uh -huh. And these old people are really old, like don't trust anyone over 90 type of old, you know, they talk about <laughs> things that happened and, and they, they try to remember, but they live such a very specific life of just the same things over and over again, that there's not much that sticks out in their memory. And what they do remember, they don't all remember accurately. Yeah, I guess they have so much repetition in their lives that like one year feels like 10 years or 10 years feel like one year, you know. It's like, "Oh, when did that happen? Oh, it was when the that that thing burned down." Oh, that was a year ago. No, that was 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. They have no they have no way of of putting that these these pieces in a timeline and and a part of that seems to be because of the way the world has moved on, right? I think that yes. that, that that's a part of it that they tend to they remember things the way they were before when river crossing was a bustling town that was able you know one 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 place along the river where people would barges would stop and unload goods and take goods onto lud and they remember when lud was this you know wonderful city with lots happening and now there's been a fight between two major groups the pubes and the grays and the Greys were the, and correct me if I get any of this wrong, Jay, the Greys were the old people who were living in Ludd, the, the original sort of settlers of that town. Yep. And the pubes were the young people. Um, and, you know, we saw a warning early on in the chapter that says, you know, no pubes, pubes, die. pubes yeah. die. And 
I, I was like, what is that? And pubes, obviously puberty. They're the younger group that came in and they sort of besieged the town of Ludd. Mm-hmm. But now at this point, everybody's a gray. Everybody's a, everybody's old. <laughs> so like the, the the pubes and the gray sort of don't make any difference anymore. And there's been other groups that have come through and battled, and no one even really seems to remember why they're fighting. And at one point they had guns, and at one point they even had artillery. It seemed like of some sort because there was big bangs that came from the city. But things have started to slow down now. But it it does seem to be a dangerous place where no one wants to get in the middle of. And their survival is at this point is definitely contingent upon hiding from anybody who might want to mess with them, right. which is why they, they've become so good at just being camouflaged and making it look like they're, they're not even there. But when they see Roland as a gunslinger, they're immediately excited because he represents good order. And in fact, they call him the, the return of the white is what um, Aunt Talitha says. Mm-hmm. Talitha, I'm sorry, and Talitha. And they see him as sort of bringing order and goodness and that he is a beacon of of the white of good. Right. And so they want to give him the courtesy he deserves, the best meal he can get, uh, and, and along with the rest of his crew, crew, and they're able to tell him all these things so that he has a better sense of what's happening in Lud. Yeah. And it almost seems like they have, like, considering the uh, circumstances, they they live a pretty decent life. They have all the food that they need. They have, uh, apparently they have some shelter. They have uh, something, some semblance of a society. And, you know, they, they even have some comforts, you know, like they have booze and they have, <laughs> you know, but, and they, they're not dying of starvation and they're not dying of like radiation sickness and mutation. And they are living, they're continuing to live past their hundredth birthdays and yes. stuff like that. So, it's not all bad, but all it's going to take is just one person to peek through a crack in a wall and see see a garden for it all to come to a very <laughs> swift end. Yes. Now, what's interesting about this area of Midworld is that we've seen Tull, which seemed to be your regular stagecoach, you know, one one tavern town. Um, we've seen Gilead, which was more reminiscent of a medieval castle with some nice add-ons like a kitchen with a gas-burning stove and and, and some other things. Um, underneath the mountain, we saw what looked to be like a subway or train type station. Mm-hmm. But in this discussion by the the elders of River Crossing, we get a sense that Ludd is much different of a city, right? I mean... They, the people here remember when there was a train that would go back and forth, and they even are able to describe what what Eddie perceives to be maybe a sonic boom of some sort, like a train yeah. going super fast. So um, this seems to be a much more advanced city or region than anything we've seen so far in Midworld. Yeah, it sounds like what perhaps much of much of Midworld was like before the world moved on, before the Great Old Ones disappeared. Lud seems to be a city built by the great old ones. Yes. So it had or perhaps has the what remains of all of the wondrous technology that they they had, the flying cars and the supersonic trains and the sparkling electric lights and the nuclear powered gizmos and bridges that span wide rivers and and things like that. So it's all there. And much of that still remains. They can see it from a distance, the skyline and the bridge and Yep. They don't see the lights. You no. Know, Aunt Talitha doesn't 
remember how long ago the last time they saw the lights, but it did happen when, in their lifetime. So. Yes. And so Eddie starts to think of this in a very exciting way, right? He, he, he has much of a, much more of a, I've watched too much TV and too much movies like, hey, there's a town there and there'll be stuff that can help us and I'll get the next thing I need for my quest and maybe there'll be a fuse box that I can find and I'll just flick a switch and the lights will go on and we'll find transportation and people who can help us and feed us and give us direction. And he starts to get excited in the, mm-hmm. you know, glass half full type of Eddie way that he does. But it seems like a totally legitimate perspective to have. I, I think if I were, you know, in the post-apocalypse and <laughs> I stumbled upon what was the, you know, the remains of a city, I would get excited that I would be able to find things that I could use there because sure. surely somebody left something behind <laughs> that still works. But that's also the place where you're probably going to discover that other people have the same idea and they've holed up in a, <laughs> you know, in a what used to be a grocery store and they shoot anybody that comes within a hundred feet. <laughs> That never happens. I've never seen that happen in post-apocalyptic fiction. Everyone gets along great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it worked out so well for Charlton Heston. <laughs> but what ends up happening from a story perspective here, and then we can move on to our next topic, is that the group needs to decide, do they go through Lud, continuing to follow the beam and look for potential help, but there might be danger there that the Elders of River Crossing warns about? Or do they bypass the city entirely? Um, and after a discussion with the elders and then their own palaver, they decide, hey, we're going to go through Lud and see what happens there. So from a story perspective, that's sort of where we end the chapter with them. They've they've left River Crossing realizing if we stay there any longer, we're never going to be able to leave. We're going to get caught in this, oh, we'll help them paint. We'll help them harvest. We'll help them do this. And the connections will grow stronger. So Roland, yeah, they'll, they'll still be there when Jake turns into a gray. Yeah, exactly. So they decide, hey, we've got to move on. So they, they after they have their meal, they move on. They camp outside of town, uh, a few miles outside of town, and they decide, okay, what are we going to do? They tell their story, and we're like, we're going to go through Lud. And so that's where we end this chapter. Yeah, Roland even goes so far as to say that he suspects that Ka is going to influence their decision no matter what they choose to do. And that if they don't go through the city, Ka will find a way to force them into it. And so it's like, we might as well not fight fate. We might as well just go <laughs> head on and maybe hope for the best. And one of the warnings that they get is that Eddie might be prized because he is a young, healthy male that could be perhaps persuaded to be on one of the sides, whether that be the pubes or the greys. Mm-hmm. But Jake, especially being young, could be somebody who could be easily indoctrinated into one side or the other. So they've they've had warnings to be careful. And Susanna is viewed as valuable too because she looks like she could be capable of of childbearing. Sure. So I mean, it's it's pretty lousy to just reduce her, you know, utility to that. But the fact is, it seems like most of the people in this world aren't able to have children or or at least healthy children anymore. Yeah. So one of the unfortunate things about the edition that I'm reading, which is the uh the plume trade paperback, is that the pictures in it are just slightly in the wrong place. So when they're leaving River Crossing, Aunt Talitha 
Talitha. Why can't I get that right? And Talitha. Because it's a made up name. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's very close to Tabitha, though, which is Stephen King's wife's name, right? Yeah. Hmm. I'm just so I should just remember that. Tabitha, Talitha. And Talitha gives Roland a silver cross and says, I want you to take this and place it at the base of the tower when you get there. And Roland doesn't make any promises, but he takes it. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. that scene is well illustrated by Ned Dameron in my book, but it's done at the very beginning of it. So I was like, whoa, what are all these spooky old people standing around Roland doing? So yeah. that happened way early. And then before this chapter ends, I get a spoiler for the next chapter when there's a scary sort of a pirate looking guy. He's shirtless. He's got a bandana on his head and a patch over his eye, but he's also holding a grenade as he grabs Jake. So it does seem like Jake is going to be a wanted man once they get to to Lud. Hopefully there's no spoilers there and people have seen that. But the fact that it's in this chapter, I feel like it's not spoilers. Yeah, they do like just have the uh illustrations of every like the every 40 pages or something like, i think that, that must content. yeah i think that that it must be a must have been a printer's decision as opposed to a uh story decision so that's kind of a bummer yeah good thing we didn't share that with everybody on the podcast and ruin it for people without the illustrated version well then what's really weird is the next one shows roland getting shot in the head and killed and laid out it's amazing <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was Spider-Man <laughs> carrying him to the top of the tower. That was in uh, my edition. All right. So, good discussion about this chapter. Again, not a whole lot happening. You you seem to like it a little bit more than I do. But eh, it seems like a lot's being set up, and I'm excited to see what happens when we get to Lud. Um, one of the things we wanted to talk about, Jay, is that there seems to be... We've talked about TV tropes before. There seems to be Stephen King tropes in this chapter. Mm-hmm. Where King starts to, if not reuse his ideas, at least reimagine them in a different setting. Yeah. I imagine every author or every artist likes to chew on some of the same things over and over again and maybe express them in slightly different ways. But certainly uh, Aunt Talitha, as the very, very old leader of this group of townsfolk, just non-stop is a reminder of mother abigail from the stand absolutely and one of them has the moniker of aunt and the other one mother but in a sense they're, they're still they're still like the this you know matriarchal title of like almost a respectful one like the, they're not really your aunt they're not really your mother but because of your how close you are to them and how strong of a relationship you have with them it's like a token of respect. I uh, like, sure. call you my aunt, call you my mother. And plus they're both ancient. Right. They're both very, very old or very, very much older than the other characters who look up to them as a, their leader. The other thing I wanted to point out on Talitha that I found in the Bev Vincent book, The Road to the Dark Tower, is that her last name is Unwin, which mm-hmm. is also the name of the first publisher of Lord of the Rings. So- Stephen King calling out to that fantasy novel that he has said was a big influence on him. Wasn't that also the name of an elf? Uh, I don't know. I don't think so. Is that like Liv Tyler's character's name? I don't don't think it's Unwin. I think it's close to that, but I don't think it's Unwin. Gonna get a lot of emails on that one. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not the biggest Lord of the Rings uh, expert by far. Neither am I. Now, the other similar 
thing that we noticed that's like the stand is, and we talked before about how Eddie sees the possibilities of Lud, like, hey, we can just flick the switches and get all the power running and everything will be good because we have this knowledge. And that's very similar to how the the good guys see Boulder, right? Like, we're going to go into this town that's, you know, it's post-apocalyptic, but we've got the engineering know-how and smarts to get this city back up and running. Yeah, all that's wrong with it is that everything just ran to a stop. It's not broken. It's not destroyed. It just, we just need to turn everything back on. Yeah, there you go. That Eddie can-do spirit. Mm-hmm. The other trope that we, we kind of see a slight repetition of, and that's the the two sons, the two heartbeats, the, the dual nature of things. Um, that's something that King has explored uh, several times in his books, particularly in the dark half, which he wrote and published right around the same time that he wrote this book. So clearly he's, he was exploring these ideas of this duality or this doubling of things. And here it's, he expresses it in the idea of the, the two sons or the two heartbeats of, uh, of the rose and um that's that's when jake is relaying his vision that he had in the lot and he right. talks about how he's looking inside and he sees one sort of ball of, of of sun and then within it is another one that's diseased in some way right like especially the heartbeat part of it that that one heartbeat yeah. was was everything it was like the you know uh, almost an ecstasy kind of feeling that it gave him but the other heartbeat that was underneath felt like it was somehow sick or somehow just out of something was off about it in, a, in an indescribable way. But it, it also, in the same way that the first heartbeat made him feel this ecstatic sensation, this other one made him feel dread. Yes. And, um, and it made him feel worry, like there's something wrong and I need to help it. You know, like, like he wanted to protect it and save it. And I think that's a big part of what drives him to be on this quest is that that nurturing instinct that he has to protect the rose and what's interesting about that section is that after he tells the story eddie looks over to roland and at first he looks at roland and sees wonder on roland's face as if wow it's all coming together but then he realizes that underneath that wonder is fear and he's Mm -hmm. never really seen that deep fear he's like if roland was afraid and then he sort of trails off as if, you know, if he's afraid of this, yeah. what does that mean for the rest of us? And of course, we get a little bit of that answer towards the end when Roland, this chapter ends with Roland realizing that many of the words in the high speech have multiple meanings, but one word that doesn't is char, like Charlie the Choo Choo, which means death. Yep. At least uh, Blaine is not called charlie that would have been two on the nose yeah that might be a little bit much (laughs) (laughs) so what's our fun stuff for this chapter jay well i i just kept uh kind of giggling in a silly way every time um i read about i think it was Susanna who kept thinking of gunsmoke and matt dillon but every time I read Matt Dillon, I thought of 80s teen heartthrob Matt Dillon, <laughs> not the sheriff of Gunsmoke, Matt Dillon. Yes. <laughs> yes. My favorite giggling part was when they're talking about the drums that they hear coming from Lud. And we we discussed this last time about how they hear different things. One, you know, Roland thinks they're drums and mm-hmm. Susanna thinks it's a heartbeat and... 
Jake also th- thinks of them as a heartbeat. Heartbeat, yeah, and 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 I think Eddie thinks of it as some sort of machinery making that noise. And so, but in this chapter, they hear the drums again, and Eddie thinks, "Wow, that's a rock and roll backbeat." It sort of sounds like ZZ Top, or mm-hmm. as they're known in England, ZZ Top. As they're known by nobody anywhere, <laughs> Canada ZZ Top. Yes, <laughs> no. I- it's funny because, you know, a lot of people give people credit for pulling out the most important pieces of pop culture and, and bringing them forward. And I'm not sure if ZZ Top would be the one piece of rock and roll culture that I would pull <laughs> forward, especially when the two songs that Eddie references are Sharp Dressed Man, which, okay, yeah, that's a big hit by ZZ Top. But then Velcro Fly, which I listened to just before we got on the air tonight. And Velcro Fly is not even really representative of ZZ Top at all. It's a very 80s synthesizer driven song, mm. which is odd from a band, you know, a trio of known for its guitar, guitar, bass, and drums. And it's got this awful synthesizer hook throughout it. Um, it's got a good backbeat, sure, but the, <laughs> the synthesizer is just not a good representation for those bearded folks. So, ZZ Top. The last fun thing that I wanted to point out is um, maybe an instance of my own ka, uh, Jay. So I listened to another podcast called The Dreaming, which is doing a read-through of Neil Gaiman's The Sandman comic, which um, if you've never read The Sandman before, I highly recommend it. But in a recent podcast that I listened to, I think right around the time I was listening to this chapter, they mentioned a book by Hope Merleys called Blood in the Mist. Um, and Neil Gaiman is a big fan of Hope Merleys and in fact wrote an introduction to a recent edition of Blood in the Mist. And that stood out to me obviously because of Blood, but also as they're approaching Rivers Crossing, it's very foggy in the desert. And so they do see the city and it's sort of enshrouded in fog. And so, you know, beyond the title, I wanted to say, hey, do do I think that Stephen King was aware of Blood in the Mist and does it have any impact on the story? And in fact, what's interesting about Blood in the Mist is it's a high fantasy novel written in the 1920s, so pre-Lord of the Rings, so, you know, pre-any time that there would be fantasies. But it's about a town, Blood in the Mist, that's located at the confluence of, of two rivers, and it's really about the fight between the people who are in the town, who are sort of rational inhabitants of this town, and they're being sort of a, another group from the land of fairy is making its way in, and there's sort of this battle between these two groups. Now, I've never read the book. I've just sort of read this Wikipedia on the novel, as well as some other reviews, but it does seem like there is some connections potentially between that book and this book. Yeah, I I always give Stephen King credit for having an incredibly expansive knowledge of other literature and literary works like this. If he hadn't already read this book multiple times, he certainly had heard of it and at least knew the title. So I'm sure it had an influence. Sure. And what what's really neat about it is that it was first published in the 20s, but then there was an unauthorized edition that was published in America in the early 1970s which, you know, that would have been Stephen King's sweet spot mm-hmm. for reading. They couldn't actually find the author. She had moved from England to South Africa, and nobody knew where the rights exactly were. So some company just picked them up 
picked up the book and just published it in a in an That's edition nice. here in America. And so I, many it, writers struggle to get their books published, <laughs> and this one just gets published against their will. <laughs> yeah, so um, it got picked up as an American reprint as part of the Ballantine Adult Fantasy series. Um, so. Again, like you said, I think Stephen King was definitely aware of the book, and I, I'd be interested to do beyond sort of that surface level piece that I pointed out, whether or not there's a a deeper meaning. And we'll, I guess part of that is we'll have to see what happens in Lud in the next chapter, um, and then as well as picking up another book by Hope Murley's and trying to read it and, and making those connections. But that's a much uh, more interesting analysis of the the name of the city than what I had come up with, which was, oh, it's just short for Luddite, <laughs> which I guess you could kind of sort of twist into like maybe making an H.G. Wells connection with like the time machine and sure. troglodytes and all that stuff. But because I think King draws from a lot of that, especially with his, you know, the slow mutants under the mountain and things like that. So absolutely. Then again, it's the opposite of Luddite, right? It's the most futuristic fantastical advanced technology city that they've encountered shouldn't it be the opposite of Lud? potentially we haven't been in the city yet maybe we'll find out something different when they get there yeah maybe it's the steampunk city <laughs> but that'll be discussion for our next podcast i think that that's going to bring us to the end for this week so that's all for this episode of two guys to the dark tower came thanks jay Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower. And our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we cover book three of the Dark Tower, The Wastelands, chapter five, Bridge and City. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening.